Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. In this last episode of Visegrad Inside podcast this year, we decided to have a look back at 2020 in order to uh, reflect and be prepared for what's coming in the next year. Uh, the year was very eventful. I mean, we had political elections, uh, political turmoil, European crisis. First and foremost, perhaps we had COVID, but there were so many other uh, focal points that we tried to cover and to analyze and, and bring more reason and understanding on, um, on, on what Central Europe is, is driven by. We're focusing in our work, uh, especially recently with, well, uh, with the projects that we started um, on, on the future. Uh, we work a lot on scenarios, but at Visegrad Insight website, you may now read every week on Monday's weekly outlook and monthly foresight written from the perspective of democratic security in the region and highlighting uh, main important developments uh, that we foresee upcoming in, in the coming weeks and days and, and months. But now this is the time to reflect on the past. And uh, frankly, there is no future without the past. So there is much sense and logic in, in discussing that. My name is Wojciech Przybylski. And uh, together with Quincy Klutz, uh, we're hosting Visegrad Insight podcast. Quincy, let's begin. What do you think, how would you say, um, you know, if, if you were ranking the, the most important events of that, of this uh, passing year, uh, which one would you name? Well, I guess I'll have to be professionally biased as a historian and, and maybe say something about um, some commemorations of, of some events, some which uh, had a lot of exposure, a lot of attention throughout the year. I'm thinking in particular to the Treaty of Trianon and uh, commemoration in Hungary and um, I think both on Visegrad inside but also elsewhere there was a lot of attention on on what this commemoration says also about uh, Hungary Viktor Orban today but maybe also um, other um, other events which didn't receive as much attention maybe I'm thinking then like in Poland it was the uh, anniversary of the miracle uh, on the Vistula essentially the the Poles defeating the Bolsheviks uh, 100 years ago which I think because of circumstances and uh, and COVID-19 uh, wasn't as big a celebration as uh, as may be expected but then COVID-19 in itself um, I think also also created some some ability to look uh, back 100 years and uh, reminisce about uh, influenza uh, and uh, what is often called the Spanish flu as well. Uh, and it's interesting to note maybe in this context that uh, not so much was said about uh, Central and Eastern Europe in this context. Uh, there was a lot of talk about COVID-19 as it is uh, today. The opportunities maybe it creates for digital transition um, in, in the future. Um, but sort of the lived experience, the, the oral histories for, for Eastern Europe are very much lacking. 
And I think um, that is a striking thing for me looking back at this year in general. Well, there's a lot of attention for, for history in Central Europe. And often there is the impression that Central Europe is still struggling to escape its past, whether it's uh, related to the Second World War, whether it's related to, to the Soviet Union, whether it's related as well to questions of, of borders, uh, minorities uh, in each countries. Um, it is also often a very selective uh, reading of the past. Uh, Hungarians, uh, Viktor Orban in particular, focusing on on, on the greatness uh, of Hungary uh, before Trianon, uh, but leaving out also a lot of other questions. Same thing as well with uh, with, um, with with things like Miracle on the Vistula, uh, because it is often also about the important consequences these these events have. Uh, Essentially, stopping uh, the Bolshevik revolution in its uh, in its tracks and uh, becoming a state revolution rather than uh, something cross border. So I think I mean this this year at least has given a lot um, to think about, to to reflect upon, um, and also to show how much still uh, today's events, uh, today's political discourse is very much um, influenced uh, by these historical events. And it's it's partly about uh, trying to to disentangle those histories, but I think also hopefully in the future to come some to, uh, to come to 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 discussion also, which is is more across borders. It's one thing, for example, to explain uh, the Hungarian tragedy of Trianon. It's another thing to to actually have an active discussion as well between uh, peoples from, from different countries about what together we can learn uh, from that history and not just to look at it from a national perspective. So that would be me, but uh, I guess, Wojciech, you'll, you'll probably have a lot of other things uh, you want to add uh, looking back to 2020. No, I, I, I like your perspective, uh, especially under COVID lockdown. You don't have that much uh, time to, to act. There, there, is, there is less action more reflection. So what do you do? You, you think back on, on the anniversaries. And, uh, but, but I was frankly a little bit surprised, uh, if, if you, if the question was, what were the most important events of the passing year that you started off with, with history and memory? Um, but I agree the, the questions of memory and how the memory is shaped, uh, by public discussion, by, by political events. This is indeed very, very important. I remember that at the very beginning of the year, we had this, um, an important event, uh, perhaps now overlooked, uh, when Europe united behind Poland, um, in, uh, in a clear, um, demystification, debunking of the narrative that was proposed by Vladimir Putin earlier in 2019. There was a European Parliament initiative, you know, declaration, um, that to commemorate totalitarianism as they were. So this was not only Nazi, but it was also Soviet, um, totalitarian oppression on the European peoples. And, and then we've seen Vladimir Putin striking back with his version of the narrative, um, that didn't win his friends, uh, that didn't win him friends. 
And importantly, um, for a quite for a Polish government, quite isolated otherwise in in different European initiatives, we have seen European nations standing uh, and 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 guard, you know stay, standing by Poland in this spat uh, about history, about memory, um, uh, European European part of it uh, for sure. So I read this was very important, and also looking to the east, uh, of course, mid year. Um, after we, after we already released scenarios for Eastern partnership, the scenario, uh, the scenarios that involved, uh, you know, unfreezing, uh, potential conflicts and also scenarios about, uh, unlikely, you know, uh, calm transition of power or if any transition of power in Belarus, they, they came about, uh, and that was, that was truly frightening moments. Very, very, um, very bad moments, of course, uh, especially when it comes to individual casualties and victims of, of physical violence that took place both in Nagorno Karabakh. Uh, that uh, is taking place also, we have to remember, in uh, eastern Ukraine, but, uh, but it also um, happened in, in Belarus. With a, with a bit of, I would say, with a bit of optimism, we were looking at these events not only as through through the prism of, of obviously uh, unjust victims beaten, tortured by security uh, forces of Lukashenko, but but we see also a rebirth of a nation, Belarus, as reason, and it's unlikely to uh, uh, to fault uh, under any sort of centralized authoritarianism. It, the days, uh, hopefully, maybe weeks and months, but I would count it in days. The days of the authoritarian Lukashenko are counted, and this is also driven, and you know, by by memory building. This is a nation that doesn't have a, a rich memory uh, compared to many other countries, but uh, currently, it's the most vivid uh, country that that. Uh, clearly builds its its future identity, its current identity on on um, on the memory of what they are accomplishing together. So I think that's definitely something that that was catching my attention, and we've been also writing about it. It's in the immediate it's in the immediate uh, vicinity of the European Union and also the Visegrad Group, Central Europe. We have seen countries involved: Poland, Lithuania, the Visegrad Group countries. Very clearly standing uh, in support of the uh, of, of Belarus, we we still need to see much more. And then I think uh, one last event, I mean, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't overlook it. All in the context of COVID uh, pandemic, uh, the elections in the United States, and the the victory of Joe Biden, the unlikely hero in in the previous age before the pandemic. Um, Definitely uh, a great politician with a long track uh, record, but but uh, now being elected to the post vis-a-vis uh, -vis Trump, um, purely I would say thanks to this uh, reflection and self-realization of of American voters, you know of what's important in life and what sort of decency is is needed in politics as well uh, when a crisis comes. So uh, looking at COVID not as an event, but as a catalyst of, of many processes and political change, I find this was, um, this was one, of the, one, one of the most important um, uh, so far. 
Yes, I mean I fully agree on on Belarus, and I think also the importance of the of the Biden administration. One question maybe I'm left with, and this is, well, looking back at 2020, but also really thinking about uh, already what will come next, uh, is the question of European unity and to what extent uh, this has been an important year, 2020, also for European unity. I mean, we've seen it was tested uh, repeatedly, whether it was during the first uh, wave of the COVID-19 pandemic and and sort of solidarity and and borders being closed, but also disinformation when it came to what exactly the EU was doing, and maybe to some extent also the wider uh, transatlantic alliance. But then, of course, also inevitably talking about uh, rule of law, discussions about the budget, which we often had also on, on this podcast. I mean, some some really impactful decisions have been taken, I think, this year. If we look um, at the overall European Recovery Fund to the next multiannual financial framework, I think thinking... Uh, in a context where COVID-19 wouldn't have happened, uh, such an ambitious um, agreement would have been probably very difficult to achieve. And now somehow uh, budget orthodoxy uh, talk about being frugal has been has been left aside. Um, and it's not a perfect agreement, but it is, uh, I think, um, some significant step. Although, and this is the question that uh, I'm stuck with, uh, is is how how significant it will be for for the long term. So I don't know. This is also maybe a question to you. How how do you see European unity play into this uh, in the last year, but also as a scenario uh, for the next? Yeah, and here comes the Brexit question. And <laughs> well, I guess everybody is thinking what will what will happen again? Uh, you know, will we seal the deal? Will there be a deal or there will be no deal Brexit? Um, and and as we speak, we still don't know. Um, yeah, I agree with you that the question of European Union uh, unity the state of the European Union has been very much, um, again, questioned. But um, but Europe has been already coming, you know, starting this year, much, much, uh, you know, stronger than anyone believed before. It was, first of all, stronger because it held ground and unity in the process of Brexit negotiation uh, before. And uh, that was an unlikely development for many observers. People, analysts, thought the European Union might have a very big trouble, especially with troublemakers on board, to negotiate a successful deal on on uh, on Brexit. The deal is not closed. Uh, we we don't have it yet, but unity is there, and um, and we've seen that that Britain was. Uh, so far having much more trouble, political trouble at home than the European Union when it came to the holding common position. So that's number one. You're right to point out COVID-19 trouble at the beginning, but uh, when there is a fog of war, um, and that was a disinformation war at the very beginning, very, very pronounced, uh, now coming not only from Russia, but also from China, on, on one side, uh, trying this blame game about the coronavirus uh, with the others. And of course, United States, Donald Trump, he, he, was, he was stirring uh, a lot of unrest 
and a lot of fake news here as well. But, uh, but we have seen how, uh, how aggressive uh, China has become in the domain of disinformation and also in, in uh, this kind of sharp power promotion of, of its importance vis a vis other countries. Uh, with a uh, carrot, carrot and stick approach, while the carrot wasn't that big and the stick was quite, well, maybe not so big, but definitely frightening in, in the hands of a powerful player. We've seen these events unfolding in Czechia. Uh, we've seen, uh, we've seen how China is trying to dominate in, in the discussions across Central Europe. We've, we've seen this manifestation also in Poland. When there were spats, uh, open, you know, open uh, public letters from from ambassador of China, answered by ambassador of the United States, and that, that that was a lot of 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 that, and the European Union in that context, I think it went, uh, it, it came about much stronger, much more, uh, I would say, prepared, uh, unlike many many other countries. First and foremost. You know, this is not only in the next generation fund and, uh, um, uh, which is a big step in, in creating a unity, uh, because we are getting indebted as Europeans together, uh, for the first time in history. But it's also about efficiency in dealing with, with daily fears of Europeans, which is about COVID vaccination. Um, we now, of course, we will still have to investigate how much the European Union has been transparent about the process of, you know, funding and uh, and and researching and then purchasing the the vaccine for uh, for the European member states and for European citizens. But I think this was a a, a ground uh, groundbreaking moment also in the history of of the development of the European Union. If, if we look back, well, I mean, let's see, the vaccination needs to take place and it's, it's the coming months that we'll see that. But we, we haven't seen the potential of any single member state to, to secure, uh, the vaccination. Uh, and we did it as Europeans, uh, because we stayed united and, uh, we, we are important big market thinking, you know, and, and playing, of course, uh, our stakes against other big players in the global uh, scale. So I think European unity here is, is quite okay. And uh, there will be there will be tests, but the, the, the last test that has been passed, this this supposed uh, veto of Poland and Hungary didn't didn't really have a chance to stand, as we have clearly warned um, before. Uh, the the final decision, so I think th these minor things uh, are are not currently uh, jeopardizing the European projects. These smaller fractions and kind of this uh, missing the point or mi mi missing uh, attention missing from some events taking place somewhere in the peripheries. You know, Bul Bulgarian elections coming in March two thousand twenty one. A uh, small country, quickly depopulating country, very corrupt country, where we also report on, on, on all of that in, in our writing, in our analysis and an opinion, uh, is a country that uh, the majority is held by, uh, by the biggest European political family, uh, EPP. Uh, the developments in, 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 therefore, in the governments, uh, related to the governments of Bulgaria are, 
are at the heart of the problems of the European Union. Very often they're overlooked because they're overshadowed by, by, um, by other. So, so I think that this is the important part to be, to be uh, focused. And this is what we try to do to be focused on, on the region and this kind of so-called peripheral uh, events and, uh, and trends that in fact uh, are not peripheral at all. You're listening to the Visegrad Insight Podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Don't forget to check our new series, Weekly Outlook and Monthly Foresight. Together with experts and fellows from over 10 countries of Central Europe, we're collecting for you the intelligence on democratic security in the region. Read more at Visegrad Insight website, uh, check our social media, and don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, Quincy, what's your projection on the other hand? Uh, what do you think of, um, you know, what, what of the events and trends that we, we have seen in the 2020 will, uh, will be impactful and are, you know, worth to follow in 2021? It's hard to say right now, but I, I might want to highlight uh, two different things. I mean, one, while being based in Warsaw, I think, it was very hard, at least uh, in Poland, to escape um, the the protests uh, which were happening all throughout the year and which I can only see in a way um, repeat and continue also throughout 2021. Uh, the big question is also about uh, its impact um, outside of Poland, where I'm, I'm maybe a bit more skeptical. I think this is particularly a, a Polish question, although um, there is a... Um, a capacity or a perspective of, of protests also um, appearing elsewhere. Um, we've seen it in, in 2019 in, in Czechia, um, aimed against the government. Um, I think there's definitely a potential as well in, in Hungary um, over whether it's uh, LGBT rights or uh, corruption um, or just uh, dissatisfaction also with uh, how the government has managed COVID-19. So there's definitely, I see a potential, uh, even despite COVID-19 and restrictions, that, that people will continue to use the streets um, to protest. At the same time, I've also been really surprised with uh, how civil societies, to some extent, has mobilized um, online. Um, women strikers have, have done it quite successfully uh, next to also coming on the street. And as you know, as I was writing also on on, um, on civil society in, in 2020 and its its sort of future, I think I'm I'm fairly optimistic, uh, at least that uh, lessons are, lessons are being learned about uh, the potential also of of um, of mobilizing online. Uh, one uh, doesn't uh, exclude the other. I think there will always need to be a presence also on the streets, but at least it, it shows a lot of potential. And then the second issue, um, maybe just quickly, is um, is a bit what the, the, the whole climate uh, change question will bring to Central Europe. Uh, there will be a lot of money uh, to be spent available through the European Recovery Fund. 
Um, and uh, I, it's an open question um, how how successful, for example, Poland will be in, in winding down its reliance on coal, um, how important nuclear energy uh, will be uh, for the energy mix. And then there's a whole range of other questions related to that, uh, which, uh, which uh, corporations and which countries in particular will be involved also in, in tendering for, for the next generation of nuclear power plants. And um, that transition is going to be key, uh, not just in 2021, but up until 2030. So uh, th- th- that's just two points I would uh, I would highlight, maybe. Yeah, yeah, Quincy, you're absolutely right that there is a, uh, there are things happening in the civil society uh, that caught many by surprise. Uh, we have read and actually commented on the reports, for instance, by the National Democratic Institute, uh, hinting at. Uh, these different forms of, of uh, political activity or public activity by, by uh, uh, the next generations or new generations coming of age and, and becoming active in public space. And uh, nobody has been expecting that Central Europe, uh, so masculine in its, uh, in its forms of, of representation of, in, of, you know, political class of, uh, but even in the NGOs, in, in public life, um, would see, first of all, uh, a female revolution, female-driven revolution in, in Belarus, then uh, such a scale of uh, female or, or equality-driven issues in Poland, uh, equal rights and uh, women's rights, uh, these were the, the main drivers. And I would not be surprised that um, other countries in the region where, especially when we look at Czechia, Slovakia or Hungary, which are so, uh, you know, male, male actors dominated when it comes to the, the main roles, decision makers, uh, stakeholders, uh, they will also, uh, see the, some processes, uh, that are about, you know, sometimes about imitation, sometimes it's about inspiration, uh, maybe beginning. So, so this is what I would be looking at into, into 2021. Definitely uh, keeping an eye on Belarus, definitely looking at uh, what sort of social uh, mobilization there is in, in Poland, in other countries that might be uh, coming as well. Speaking, by the way, speaking of um, uh, important commemorations, uh, in January next year, uh, we will have the, the Baltic, uh, the Baltic, uh, revolution, the Lithuanian revolution that was following 1989. And, uh, together with friends from the Open Lithuania Foundation and the uh, College of Eastern Europe, we are planning, uh, events related to that together under the EU grant, uh, for the European Commission, uh, program action for citizens, EU for citizens, and um, we'll be releasing this report on, on civil society or hinting to that report on civil society that you mentioned, Quincy, and it's an excellent read. So to, to all our listeners, please go to the website if you haven't yet and, and find uh, the report Civil Society Futures. And this report, along with the other reports we released last year, is actually touching uh, the, at the heart of the, of the problems in the region. Uh, this is my second point here. I wanted to make uh, the information sovereignty, the questions of the conditions of media and changes on the media market that, uh, from the point of view of democratic security, 
maybe hurting, uh, maybe maybe you know bringing some strong deficiency, uh, are already taking place. I mean, we've been writing about Hungary. We have been focusing on Hungary a lot. But um, last month, I mean, this month, December 2020, brought news also of government takeovers, uh, first successful takeover uh, of local and regional press by uh, by the government-controlled uh, Pekin Oro and Oil Company. And that, um, that well, may not be a replication altogether of the of the Hungarian road because of all other complexities and differences between Poland and Hungary. But at the same time, it, it, you, you cannot escape an impression that, that Poland is trying again, one, once more, and hopefully as unsuccessful as before, to copy-paste uh, Viktor Orban's um, mode of, of, of governance. Uh, so we've been touching base, you know, we've been touching on, on the, on the information sovereignty a lot throughout the year. And I think we will be definitely monitoring this, um, uh, looking also at the positive side of, of how media are resilient, how journalists are able to mobilize and to restart independent media. This was the example of Telex in, in Hungary, uh, the editorial board of uh, index, editorial team of index. Uh, the biggest portal that was uh, eventually shut down uh, in the form it existed before. It was not independent anymore. Decided to set up a new project and a very successful one. So I, I also see a lot of optimism and will be monitoring uh, the, the trends and, and, and the potential of media, independent media and media uh, resilience or what we call information sovereignty, uh, the democratic version in in the coming uh, months in 2021 Quincy I think w let's wrap it up and if you if you were to say a wish and then our listeners would uh, you know would would, would uh, later maybe have a chance to fulfill your wish <laughs> what, what would be that wish for 2021 oh Hard to say. Um, I think, I mean, first and foremost, uh, and this is probably what, what hits people most at the personal level is, is just the continued insecurity over COVID-19. And um, we're all hoping probably for a quick and speedy uh, vaccination campaign uh, so people can can return at least to some um some degree of normality, although I think that will always be difficult to achieve. But I would say that would be my, my main wish. So... What about you? Uh, my, my wish is uh, here simple. I, I think many other wishes will come true if, if our listeners especially, uh, but also general, uh, more general public, will not turn a blind eye on, on each other neighbors. Um, you know, I, I wish we can show, demonstrate, express and feel more solidarity across the uh, across the borders uh, in Central Europe, uh, not only between Central Europeans with with Germans, we have seen some good examples. German Germany was giving helping hands in times of COVID to 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 uh, to Poles, to to Czechs, to other countries. We we have seen different expressions of solidarity, but it's about us, every individual, feeling and and you know thinking uh, and and thinking uh, you know as a you know. In the perspective of of, of uh, uh, political action, that 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 every manifestation of solidarity, be it on your social media platform or 
you know, just just a friendly call or or a thought uh, with with the people that are just across the the border. They're our neighbors, uh, as an important one. So so don't stay indifferent. Be engaged. Be interested. And I think uh, we'll we'll find solutions. Uh, together with, with in, just enough people on board. So that's my wish uh, for 2021, to stay together and in solidarity with one another. Great wish. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Quincy. So happy, um, happy holidays, uh, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, uh, still ongoing and um, yeah, and a happy new year. Yes, and let's meet each other again uh, on the podcast in 2021. Okay, until then. Bye. And that's all for now. Subscribe to our podcast, our weekly newsletter on Central Europe, from Central Europe.